verses 1 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us today as we look at your word and we think about the church, about this body of believers that you have brought together and what your plans and purposes are for us according to your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. There are a lot of books that have been written today about the church. Many of them are critiques of the church and its ministry. And as a pastor, I do a lot of reading. And so I've read uh, all of these books that I'm going to mention and uh, several others as well that have to do with the nature and the purpose of the church. And there are people who are very concerned and kind of as they critique it, they pick out areas where the church could improve. Most of these books have a grain of truth in them, but you also have to kind of look at them and keep them in perspective a little bit, too, as you think about application. For example, there's a book that some of you may have read that's called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And it picks up on the fact that in many churches today, there's an absence of men, or there's a way disproportionate number of women in certain churches and denominations, and they're wondering, where are the men, and why are they not involved? And so David Murrow wrote this book kind of critiquing, and he essentially feels that the church has become too feminine in many cases. And what we really need is a man's church. When I think about that, and I, you know, I almost chuckle when I think of uh, home improvement and how Tim the Tool Man in that TV series, you know, had things like the man's bathroom or the man's kitchen, you know, I get this picture in my mind of the man's church. It has shorter messages, more robust songs, more manly colors on the wall, and maybe a few fish and deer mounted here and there, you know. And that's kind of the man's church, you know, is what he's thinking of. Well, no, that's not quite what he has in mind here. He has picked up on something that is true, and he talks about how sometimes churches don't tap into the gifts that men have. And why do some churches do better at that than others? I think one of the best things we did in this recent building project was to add a garage and, you know, for our maintenance ministry and for uh, outreach ministries that we wanted to do that make use of some of the gifts that men have that aren't normally tapped in a church. Uh, Pastor Ron has a couple of men's groups that meet out there, you know, and those guys are involved in this car care ministry that we're doing to uh, fix up and get cars and reliable transportation for women in our community that are single moms and who need that. And that's a tremendous ministry. There are guys who love to build, do construction, serve and use their gifts in that way. Here's an outlet for them to do that in terms of ministry. It's one of the reasons we've done things like the uh, fishing tournaments or the bow hunters rendezvous that tap into interests of men because 
sometimes, again, churches do not do that, and there are men who feel like, well, I don't know if there's a place. Where can I serve? But you know what? All men aren't the same either. They all have different gifts. And so if you took David Murrow's ideas and just designed a church for a certain group of men, that wouldn't appeal to others as well. And so you always have to look at how do you keep these things in balance as you think about the church and the gifts that people have and making the best use of them. A couple other books, The Sacred Romance and Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And those have been an encouragement to many believers. But John Eldridge comes from a completely different perspective. Uh, his background is the arts, the theater, entertainment, things like that. And so he writes from a different perspective, and he critiques the church and says that, uh, you know, for a while in his life, church wasn't meeting his needs. He just dropped out for a year entirely. Uh, he feels like that what women need and the way that God has made them is women need romance and men need adventure. And so you have to appeal to that. And somehow the church isn't very good at tapping into those things. But as I read his books, and I realize I know that you can't talk about everything in one particular book, and so I don't fault him for that, but it seems to me that he promotes an individual type of Christianity that at times seems more influenced by idealism and kind of the American individualism, you know, kind of the rugged West mentality that look out for me and what I'm doing. And I don't find a lot of mention of community in his books and the need to be the body of Christ. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have community and to live together as believers in the body of Christ? You see, in our culture, I think there's a lot of this approach to church today where people go, well, what's in it for me? And it's all about me. And if it meets my needs, that's great. And if it doesn't, you know, well, I'm out of here. And there's not the same kind of understanding of service and that your gifts may be a blessing to someone else in the body of Christ. And we really do need one another. Because what we find in the Scripture is church is more than just coming on Sunday morning. This is one part of church, but this is not all the church is. And God wants us to put into practice what are called the one another passages of Scripture. We are to love one another. We're to care for one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to pray for one another. We're to teach one another and exhort and encourage one another. You can find about 60 one another passages in Scripture that really describe what the body is to be. And you can't have that if it's just simply coming on a Sunday morning and then leaving and you have no relationship. Another book that's been written that made a lot of pastors mad, myself included, was a book by George Barna called Revolution. Now, I like George Barna. I like a lot of what he's done. He's a pollster. He analyzes the church and what's going on and trends in America and religion. But in this book... He claims that there are millions of believers who have stopped going to church on Sunday morning and chosen to, quote, be the church instead. And he calls them revolutionaries. The church didn't meet their needs. Uh, they are very busy. They do want to serve. They want to use their gifts. They didn't find an outlet in the church, so they've kind of created their own outlet. And what he describes these revolutionaries as doing uh, one of the examples he uses at the beginning of the book is he has two men who are meeting on a golf course. When they looked at their schedule, that was the only time in the week that they had free, you know, if they cut out church. 
And it said the two of them meet, you know, they pray, they have fellowship together, and they play golf. And that for them has become sort of their chance to get together. That's the church. And then they're involved in a service project in a small group or things like that where they may meet with other believers during the week. What made pastors mad when they read that, though, is that I have no doubt that there are Christians who are doing that today. Um, but what Barnes seemed to be saying is that that's okay. But my question is, is that the church? Is that what God wants for the church? Is that what he describes the church being and doing? That's why we're doing this study. I'd like us to look at what God has to say about the church. And to do that, we need to go to the Scriptures. There are two books in the New Testament that I study when I think about the church that I think give a very good picture. One is the book of Ephesians that has this big picture view of the church and puts it into perspective with God's plan for the ages. And then there's 1 Timothy that has a very practical look at how the church is to function. In fact, that's why this book was written. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul said, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Do you catch that? He says, I'm writing so that you will know how you are to conduct yourself in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. In fact, all of the different topics that Paul will raise in this letter all come back to how are we to act as God's people in the church. Well, first of all, we see from the Scripture that the church is God's idea. The church is God's plan to reach a lost world. This is the means that he has chosen to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 16:18, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He describes the church as a prevailing influence in our world. The church is not to be on the defensive, it is to be on the offensive. It is to be making a difference in our culture, in our nation, in our government, in our schools, in every area of our society for the sake of Christ. He describes a church that is on the move and the gates of Hades, those defensive gates of hell, will not be able to stand against it. But instead, the church will be storming the gates of hell, bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's his picture of the church. And that's why at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He wants the church to be going and taking this gospel to the ends of the earth so that others might come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord too. So any strategy to reach the world that bypasses the local church is flawed. That doesn't mean you can't have parachurch ministries or that you can't or shouldn't have mission agencies. Those are very good when they work in partnership with a local church to accomplish the goal that God has for us. We see also in the scripture that the church is God's plan. 
to display his wisdom to the heavenly realms. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul said that his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. When I read that verse, I am always kind of stunned by it. I mean, it doesn't say that God intends through the church to make his wisdom known to men and women on this planet. He does intend that. But he talks about how the church is to be a display of God's wisdom to the angels and the demons in the heavenly realms. That's amazing. Uh, Sometimes we read that, and when you really think about it, you go, Who? (laughs) Us? I mean, really, God? You intend for this to happen through us? Because sometimes the church really stumbles along. And when we look at one another, we realize, you know what? We are all broken people. We all have flaws. We all have weaknesses. We all struggle with temptation or sin in our life that we need to deal with. We are all growing and maturing in Christ. But it's a long process. And sometimes we look at one another and we say, Really, God? We are to be that witness to the heavenly realms? The angels must marvel at that. God, couldn't you have picked a more efficient way to do this? And yet this is God's plan. And through weak, ordinary people, He displays His grace and His glory as He changes lives and He sets us free. That honors God. His goal for the church is to make us holy and blameless in His sight. Christ loves His church. Christ died for His church. He tells us in Ephesians 5.25 that husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ's desire is to purify us and to bring us a bride who will be holy and blameless in His sight and to bring us to Himself one day. When I read those words, it reminds me that we are to speak carefully about the church and what we say. I mean, imagine it this way. If you are married or if you were going to be married, would you want someone to be continually criticizing your wife as a husband? Would you want people to say, well, you know, I really like you, I really like Jesus Christ, but I don't have much time for His church, His bride? No. God wants us to value the church as He values it and to help it become all that He intends the church to become. That's why he has called us out, to be believers who work together in partnership to accomplish his purposes. Let me give you a little bit of background about this letter, 1 Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor whom Paul had placed in charge of the church at Ephesus for a time. Timothy was a disciple of Paul, a traveling companion. He was a good man, faithful and teachable. In Philippians 2.20, Paul wrote of him that I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He was faithful. He was a servant and used his gifts to be a blessing to the church. The place where Timothy ministered was Ephesus, and Ephesus was the principal city in Asia Minor. 
It was the seat of a Roman governorship there. It was a religious center. There was a pagan temple to Artemis that was there that was known all over the Mediterranean. It also was practicing emperor worship. It was a key city culturally, economically, politically. And Paul saw it as strategic to the gospel. During his second missionary journey, the church at Ephesus began in those years, A.D. 49 to 52. Paul, at that time, left in charge a, a young couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who mentored believers there and taught them. On his third missionary journey, he would return to Ephesus and he would labor there for over two years. It was his longest stay in any church that he planted. So Paul knew the people, he loved the people, and he cared about what was happening. And what prompted Paul to write this letter was the report of false teachers who had come into the church and were causing problems. They were stirring up strife, and so he wrote to Timothy instructing him what to do. Paul writes as an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is someone who has been sent with a message. He has been commissioned by God and given a message that he is to share. He is an apostle by the command of God. Paul is not some self-appointed apostle. No, it is God who has called him and commissioned him to do this work. And so Paul writes with divine authority, and we need to remember that. These are not Paul's opinions on the church, like someone today might write a book and have opinions about the church. What Paul wrote has divine authority. This is the Word of God, and it can't be set aside like, well, God spoke then, and He speaks now today in different ways, and so we can do things that we want to do, irregardless of what the Scripture says. Now, when we come to the Scripture, we recognize that this is God's Word, not just for Ephesus, but for us also. And He will tell us two very significant things about the church. The church is built on the Word of God. And we see that in this passage when he contrasts that with the false doctrine that was being taught. He tells us that the church needs sound doctrine, solid Bible teaching if it is to produce healthy Christians. And the word for sound doctrine is found um, eight times in First and Second Timothy and Titus. And that word for sound in Greek is the word hygieno, and in English we get our, our English word hygiene from it. In other words, sound doctrine is healthy. It is wholesome. It bears fruit or it gives life. In contrast, false doctrine divides and destroys and it causes divisions and dissensions in the church. And that's what was happening here. Certain self-appointed teachers were teaching false doctrines that were based on Jewish myths and endless genealogies. Now what they would do is they would take the Old Testament genealogies and the names of individuals there where we don't know anything about those people and they would invent stories about them. And then they would speculate on what these things mean and what God wanted to say to us through these individuals. But it was all fiction. It wasn't based upon what God had said or upon His truth. In fact, it led them to ignore the clear commands of God in favor of other myths. Sometimes that happens today, too. Several years ago, there was a book that was written called The Bible Code. 
and the author claimed that a Jewish mathematician, Dr. Elijah Rips, had decoded the Bible using a special computer program. He found that if you took the text of the Old Testament and you looked at a page of it and you kind of went, you know, you could go diagonally like a crossword puzzle or up or down or backwards, you could find secret messages that were embedded in the Bible. And they predicted amazing events, things like the Holocaust or the Challenger disaster or the presidents of the United States or all kinds of things could be found there. Amazing. And people began to be fascinated by that. The problem is that there are no controls on that at all. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And the nature of the Hebrew language is such that uh, it is written without vowels. It's written with just consonants. Later, vowel points were added to it. But when you just have the consonants and you are free to go in any direction that you choose, you can find just about anything that you like in the text. It was all based on pure speculation and it didn't lead to spiritual growth or maturity. What does is our understanding of God's Word and putting it into practice in our life. There are many times when people want novelties. They want something new. But what we really need is to know God's Word. And Paul will tell us the value of God's Word in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. When he tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed, And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is God's purpose for us. He's given us His Word, the clear commands of Scripture so that we might know His will and then obey it. And when we do that, it brings maturity and it yields fruit. He also tells us in this passage that the church is built on love our love for God and for people. He writes that the goal of this command is love. Timothy, teach your people to love one another. That is the aim of all Christian moral teaching, and somehow they had missed it. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to the disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Paul wrote in Galatians 5-6 that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, if you claim to have faith, but that hasn't changed your life and made you a more loving and kind and gracious person, then there's a disconnect somewhere. Because that's not what God intends. He wants our faith to be real and genuine and to show itself in deeds of kindness and love. This love comes from, he tells us, a pure heart, a heart that's free from selfish desires and motives. It comes from a good conscience that is free from bitterness and guilt. It comes from a sincere faith, a genuine, not hypocritical faith. It's the real deal, and it shows itself in a changed life. It is real because of your relationship with Jesus Christ and what He has done in your heart. You know, when I read 1 Timothy, one of the things that I find there in the Scripture is this healthy balance between doctrine and life, truth and love. They must always go together. We can't have one without the other and be healthy. 
1999, there was an interesting study done at Purdue University on parenting. And they talked to Christian students, and this particular project was kind of wanting to understand what was it that led students to pick up the faith of their parents. They looked at kids that really did catch it and were growing in their relationship with God. And what was it in their parents that made a difference in their life? And what they found to them shouldn't surprise any of us. They found that what a student needs or a child needs in order to capture the faith of their parents is both words and love. They need the example of a life well lived, but they also need the clear instruction that a parent gives. You see, if we just simply talk about our faith, but we don't live it, that's hypocritical. If a person says they believe in God, but they really don't love, or they don't change, it doesn't change the way that they live, that's just being a hypocrite. That's not real or genuine, and people are turned off by that. But on the other hand, if people live out their faith in a way where they are a good, moral person, but they never talk about it, and they never talk about what they believe, or as a parent, you never tell your children what you believe and why you do what you do, And kids can misinterpret the message. Or others who see you may just simply see you as a good moral person and never understand why and what Christ has done in your life. We need both words and love. We need doctrine and life to go hand in hand together if people are to understand the message. The church is built on both, and so is our walk with God. If we're going to be an effective witness for Christ, we need to talk about our faith when those opportunities are there. And as parents, if we're going to pass on our faith to our children, we need to both live it and express it in our words. It was interesting as I was doing this study for this passage this week, I I spoke on on 1 Timothy, it's almost 20 years ago now, when I first taught on this book in our church. And in the margin of my notes, I had written a comment. I don't remember who said it to me. It probably was someone at seminary some 20 years ago. But it was interesting to see this comment in the margin. Someone told me that the two keys to a long ministry are this. Love your people and teach them God's Word. Love your people and teach them the Word of God. You know, I would say that's good counsel, not just for a long ministry, but that's the core of the church. That's what's at to be to be at the heart of our relationship with God. That's really the way that we should parent as well. Love our children. Teach them God's Word. Be that kind of person who builds those things into your life, and you will have a fruitful and productive life. May we all make it our aim this year to grow in our knowledge of the Scripture and to grow in our love for God and for one another. What will you do to make that happen in your life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word and your love that changes us. It transforms us. Your word renews our mind. It shows us how we should live. It's a word from you, and we need to treat it that way. And I pray that you would help us to obey you. And Father, I pray too that we would become lovers of God and lovers of people who express that faith in kindness and action and consideration, who show it in our deeds and in our words. Father, help us to be that kind of church, a church based on your word 
and a deep love for you and one another. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.